Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity, and I'm your host, Gary Turner. I'm also the founder of HexoChange, and HexoChange is a transformational change practice dedicated to helping you connect to yourself, to others, and to systems at large in a more meaningful way, thus helping us turn around our workplace and planetary challenges and accelerating how alive we all feel in every aspect of our lives. This track is called Kaleidoscope and was created for me personally and for HexoChange by Peter Griffiths, one half of the amazing Mind Takeaway. I hope you enjoy this exploration and please do share it on your social platforms so we can bring more humanity to more people. Hope to speak to you soon. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And I've got a really exciting proposition for you kind listeners for joining us today in that I have double bubble. I have two guests today in uh, Kirsten Richard, who is CEO of Richard Innovation Consulting. She's an innovation expert who works with leaders and organizations on transformational efforts. But I'll let you introduce a bit more about that shortly, Kirsten. And then we have Jeff Eichler as well, who is director of Coetico, easy for me to say, coaching and consulting. He's an executive leadership and career coach. And there's one important thing I'd like to add here as well, is that they are both the co-hosts of Getting Unstuck, Shift That Impact, which is a beautiful podcast focusing on helping individuals and organizations undertake productive change. And I'd like to explore that a bit more because I think so much change is felt to be unproductive. So change that helps them achieve their desired outcomes and impacts. And finally, before we hear from them, they're also the co-authors along with Margaret Zaki of Shifting How School Leaders Can Create a Culture of Change. And that'll be being published next March 2020. So welcome to the podcast both. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Well, look, before we get going, for my listeners who may not know who you are, would you mind taking it in turn just to give us a, a brief overview? So who are you and what are you passionate about? I'd love a little bit more context around what really drives you. That would be great. Maybe we can start with you, Kirsten. So um, my name is Kirsten Rickert, and those are sort of the things people know me by. But if you start talking and thinking about what makes me passionate I get really excited about helping people gel what's important to them and make it even more available and more impactful in the world. And so as part of that, um, you mentioned that my firm is Rickard Innovation Consulting. Jeff and I, we'll talk a little bit more about our backgrounds, but uh, we worked in publishing for many years. And I was very fortunate to be tapped as an innovation coach. So it was a train the trainer approach. And I got to work with lots of teams doing innovation projects. And in that, I really fell in love with helping teams really see what it is they want to do and what kind of difference in the world they want to make and then use their own innate strengths, talents, interests, to make that happen in bigger and better and brighter ways. Beautiful, thank you. And I'm Jeff Eichler, um, and Gary, you mentioned uh, Quetico Coaching. Um, Quetico, uh, the name Quetico comes from a uh, um, provincial park in Canada, uh, in Ontario. And uh, <clears throat> way back in my background, um, I was a high school history teacher 
in Illinois. And in the summers, I would go up to this provincial park with my brother and some of my teaching buddies. And it was a, um, uh, it's a canoe only park. You can't bring motorboats or anything like that in it. It's quite uh, the wilderness. And for a week to 10 days, we basically lived off of what we carried in or what we caught. And um, Quetico, the, the term Quetico has a couple different meanings. One is that it's a place of quiet. Uh, but for me, um, it was a, a, a place of great challenge. Um, some of my least fondest memories are doing half mile portages with uh, black flies and mosquitoes buzzing around my head as I carried a canoe on my back along with a 70 pound food pack. Um, slogging through, um, through mud. But it was also a place of, of great reflection because we would, we would spend part of the time just laying out on the rocks during the day um, and just thinking about stuff. And uh, at night we would um, be serenaded by the northern lights and we had some great conversations. So when I started my coaching practice, um, I wanted it to be a place of great challenge for people because people do need to be challenged and pushed sometimes in coaching. coaching. But I also wanted it to be a, a place of great reflection. Um, so that's where, the, that's where the name comes from. And in terms of my passion, um, uh, you, you hit a nerve with me earlier, Gary, we were, when we were talking, um, when you had mentioned the, the phrase sleepwalking through, through life and sleepwalking through work. And I've done some reflection and that was, um, I'm guilty of that, um, where I, I took the next position that was offered me, never giving it a thought. It was just kind of, I, I rolled along and there were many, many times I wasn't satisfied doing what I was doing. So when I started my coaching practice, um, it was started with the idea that I wanted to help people find that passion, to find that purpose, and to do the kind of work that really energizes them. So that is what I would say I'm passionate about. That's lovely. Thank you both so much. And it's, it's, for me, straight away, I can see this really powerful partnership. We've got this on your side, uh, Kirsten, you've got this real passion for teams and helping them connect and amplify their, their contribution in, in together. And then you've got Jeff also creating that sort of present challenging space for them to see that and feel that. Because so much I feel, and this podcast speaks to a lot of the feeling and the emotive element of work. For so many generations now, we've, it's not even been a conversation. You know, what do you feel like as a senior leader? Or what does it feel like to process the fact you're angry? You know, it's a new thing for me the last couple of years. I'd love to ask you both to, both respectively, how does that show up for you in your work? Is emotion a key part of it? Or is it a sort of side conversation? It's funny because one of the central underlying themes of our book is that balance between smart and healthy. And the fact that smart is what we typically have a lot of training in, a lot of overt conversations in, a lot of our how we do things is in the smart realm. And yet, much of our enjoyment and success, real success, and actually ability to pull off all those things that are on the smart side is really on the healthy side. And so 
from my perspective, if you are approaching teams and organizations like me, or approaching individuals, especially in a leadership capacity like Jeff, if you aren't really being very attentive to the emotional component, and even the sort of life purpose component, which is maybe associated with the emotions, but like above the emotions, is you're missing the boat. Yeah, that's, that's so well said. And Gary, I know that resonates with you, given our, our past conversations. The, the Smart and Healthy that Kirsten mentioned, it really comes from a book by Patrick Lencioni called The Advantage. And he, he talks about uh, uh, two types of organizations. The smart ones, they focus on what he calls decisional sciences, strategy, tactics, marketing, infrastructure, um, finance and so on. There's nothing wrong with that. Businesses have to pay attention. Leaders have to pay attention. Uh, but then he also focuses on um, uh, what he refers to as healthy organizations and healthy leaders. And they focus, um, they focus on the work, but they focus um, intensely on the people doing the work. And that's, that's something that both of us do in our respective work. Kirsten, when she's doing innovation, me when I'm doing my coaching is that, uh, especially when I work with leaders, is um, one of my one of my uh, most interesting, challenging questions is: What if you focused 95% of your time on the people that you're leading, and only 5% of the time on the work itself? What would that look like? And you get some amazing expressions on people's faces and some very interesting answers. But it's um, the percentages may not be correct, but the but we often lose the focus on people because the work is the work is omnipresent. It's always there, and uh, we we for, we forget the humanity behind getting the work done. It's so I've got 50, 55 questions at least in my mind, and I'm going to keep them to narrow because I, I love I love that you speak about the advantage as well because I remember. In fact, it's one of the few books a senior leader within my work organization has given to me. Normally, it's going the other way. And I think what really resonated with him a few years ago was the point around clarity and reinforcing clarity. And I think what I feel that you're speaking to, and maybe, you know, please add on to this, is if we're not understanding the emotional part, if we're not processing our fears or talking about them or finding out why something works with one person but doesn't with someone else, are we not? in an unclear state of mind. And I'm just wondering, does that bring up anything for either of you as I reflect on that? Yeah, I, as you said, clarity versus unclear. When you're working with teams, a lot of times there is sort of the known thing that the team is working towards. And then maybe a few people that are either in certain positions or just dispositionally, they're willing to put it out there more their item gets added to what, how to make it clear. Oh, it's clear that we are doing blah, or this is what we have, these are the priorities that we have. But the ability to actually step back for a minute and say, okay, and what else do we need to make clear? Or what else might be running counter to that? Or what might be the obstacles to that and have some sort of deliberate and facilitated session where you're really drawing that out without drawing out what's not being said, 
you will not get to clarity. People will think that you have clarity. There might be some, some notes that come out of the meeting or some you know, uh, critical success factors that people say are the thing. But meanwhile, there's a whole bunch of unstated, unsurfaced stuff that is often attached to emotion, right? That actually makes that thing obsolete. Yeah, one of the, um, uh, you just made me think of this, one of the oft heard phrases was, I thought we were going to X. You know, we have these, and I think part of it is, as we're in those types of meetings, we're often in our own head for a moment, and we're, we're making up notes in our own head that they may not be stated assumptions, but we're making that assumption in our head. So later on, we could go, uh, well, I thought we were going to do this. And well, th this really wasn't spoken in the meeting. It was all upstairs in my head. But to Kirsten's point, we haven't drawn it out of people. That reminds me that Bob Prohl, we interviewed a project manager, Bob Prohl, in our show, and he turned, he has haikus, project management haiku. And one of my favorite haiku, well, I don't remember it exactly, but it's something like, there, the time for surfacing that was at the meeting. Right. So it's really incumbent upon the leader to draw that out in people. You know, what are you thinking? What are they, are, are we leaving unstated assumptions under the rug here? So the other thing that we work on, on uh, especially with leaders, Gary, is, um, uh, is the idea of having uh, staff take greater ownership that leaders don't have to leading isn't necessarily I decide everything Leading is, is me helping to develop you as a thinker and a future leader And one way we can do that gets back to your point about clarity, which is having people um, Not ask me what I think we should do or asking permission for what they should do but instead saying I intend to do X because so stating what it is that they, they want to do and giving the reason they want to do it. And that doesn't mean that permission isn't still part of it, but you're getting to, you're getting to hear their reflective thinking and the ownership of action is now on them as opposed to everything being pushed across the table to you as the quote unquote leader. I love that so much, both. Thank you. For, there's two things that are so powerful in what you've just spoken to. One is I was very grateful to have David Marquet on episode seven of the podcast, who developed intent-based leadership uh, with his book, Turn the Ship Around. And as you spoke to that, it's almost as if we've put so much baggage around, man whether you call it a manager or a leader, I prefer leader, but there's so much belief system and assumption wrapped up in that role that very few people I feel really have that conversation in that meeting around you know what are we actually going to do you know why are we here what difference do we want to make you know it's almost like everyone's on eggshells continuously just skirting the thought that they've got in their mind because they don't want to be the one to speak up or to challenge and i'm wondering how do you go about creating that because i guess it's something about safety how do you get people to intentionally be mindful of creating safe environments that people can speak up or say to a senior leader look I disagree or I think is a better way. That's probably really in your wheelhouse with the work you do in innovation sessions and such. Yeah, I think part of it is recognizing a lot of times a leader or a team is working on a process, right? 
And so there are moments in the process in which you really do need to flesh out and figure out and clarify. And then there are other moments where you need to take action and see what happens and then check in. And so part of the answer to that is, I feel like a lot of times people hold back their unspoken things because they're not sure that it will be productive. First of all, there's there's the psychological safety part, which is, hey, I might get hurt, that I might have bad consequences for me if I state something that's running counter to what everybody else is saying or agreeing to. So there's that, which we can address in a moment. But let's just say, if you're talking about part of the thing that holds people back is not wanting to waste time, not wanting to derail, not wanting to, not knowing if now is the right time to weigh in and share. Fearing that you're going to be wrong, quote unquote. Exactly. Right? And so part of it is just helping the leader and the team design a, a process by which you kind of clearly identify, well, here are some key windows that we are going to check in on these things. And here are some windows where we're going to sort of try something out and then loop back to our original assumptions and see if they need tweaking. And, and when you articulate those windows of opportunities to weigh in and to be included and to be sort of more expansive and then there's the, a lot of the design thinking work talks about converge and diverge. Like, you, there are moments where you have to all be on the same page, right? But then there are these moments where you actually are trying to solicit as much information as possible before you converge again on the clarity of purpose that's going to take you through that next phase. And so just being able to articulate like now is the time for that and we're going to set aside a, junk, a good chunk of time and we're going to have a facilitated meeting where people, people's input is come, comes in in a, in a way that makes it a little bit more equal and like that really helps with those sorts of things. Yeah, and I, I was thinking as you were talking about the, the Google study, you know, on what, what makes effective teams and this idea of psychological safety. Um, that everybody has to feel secure, uh, but also part of that was that everybody gets a chance, not even a chance, everybody needs to speak, right? We need to hear from everybody, but there has to be the right environment. And one of the, one of the critical things I think about leadership and where this can get easily hijacked is if the leader jumps in too soon. If we hear from the leader too quickly around the table, people are going to pull back and say, well, why do I need to uh, why do I need to counter Jim? You know, he's already spoken. This is how he feels. So um, I have this this great example that I um, it it was taken out of the book by one of my colleagues, but it's a uh, it's a great example of the leader uh, waiting until the the very end to speak. And um, is it okay to to tell this, Gary? This little please, story, please, please, yeah. be great, please. So, so um, I'm a space geek. And um, this example comes from the, um, the mission to Pluto. It was called New Horizons. That's the name of the spacecraft. And New Horizons was approaching Pluto. And the team was sitting around a conference table wondering if they should send the spacecraft a message that would ensure that its cameras were focused on the right position to take pictures of Pluto. Because... The, the spacecraft was going to fly by Pluto. It wasn't going to be able to go into its orbit around Pluto. It was a one-shot deal. 
Well, the thing was, it took four and a half hours for the signal at the speed of light to get to the spacecraft, and then another four and a half hours to get a signal back saying it understood the signal. So the, the leader, Alan Stern, got everybody around the table and wanted to hear from people um, what their thinking was. Do we send another signal to New Horizons, or do we, do we believe that we've got, we've, we're secure enough in the, in the window of time we got, and I think it was 90-some seconds, that uh, if, if New Horizons was in this time frame, they were going to get the pictures that they wanted. So he heard from everybody. He deliberately waited, and he heard from everybody. And most of the people, if not all of the people, said, yes, let's send the signal. We've got to send the signal. And when he spoke, he said, we're not going to send the signal, because sending the signal could, um, could introduce risk, and we have to trust the data that we've got, and so on. Well, history shows us that that was the right decision. They got beautiful pictures. But he gave everybody a chance. And the interesting thing is that people came to him later saying, I really, said, I really wanted to say, um, no, we shouldn't do it. But I felt the pressure of the group. And if he, if he had spoken too early, he could have shut everybody down. So that, that, I think, gets to this idea of psychological safety. But it's also a question of trust, is that people have to, people have to believe that if they if they say something, the group is going to trust them with that, with whatever they're saying. And that's what often shuts down people is that I think I'm going to be wrong or I'm going to be the outlier here. And what we're really interested in is, is the opinions, the thoughts of, of people for the collective good. And I, I listen to that story and I say, okay, great. It was good that he could read the emotions and he could read the situation well enough to know that he should make the call that was counter to what was said, right? But then I also think, okay, but there were some things that if you had a facilitator there, you could have had done in that situation. Everybody could have written down the pros and cons on their own sheet and then made the recommendation on their own sheet and then he could have said, okay, so show of hands, dots, you know, text it in. Back in the day, of course, they couldn't do that. But right, like have some sort of uh, where are we at? And then he could have said, okay, so what were some of the things you grappled with? What, what's, what are the pros of this? What are the cons of this? What do, we, what do we feel like? And then he could have made the call. So like, it was good that he had enough awareness to be able to really suss out that he shouldn't make that call. But there are things that you can do to prevent group think that are pretty easy to make happen. Right, I, I agree with you 100%. They were under a time constraint right. where they had to make this decision really fast because again, the signal took four and a half hours. But I think we should try to get Alan Stern on our podcast so that Kirsten can uh, give him some helpful hints about how to run his meetings in the future. <laughs> Why not? not? <laughs> it's, it's, it's the right time. We're in December. Set those intentions for 2020, guys. Set those intentions. That's right. But what I love, though, and I really appreciate you sharing, is if we, like, what we're talking about here, trust, psychological safety, you know, courage, teaming, you know, None of this stuff is about hitting the metrics. Yeah, we, we believe, and I think increasingly we're seeing, that if we get this stuff right, the human connection, the trust, the clarity, you get better results as an outcome. Raj Sassoda is showing it, conscious capitalism, you know, 7, 8x versus the standard and poor. 
Um, you know, so the numbers are crystal clear in the same way that diversity inclusion, more diverse boards are crystal clear, but we're still not seeing the movement towards more balanced um, boards. We're not seeing the move towards more human centered design. And I'm just wondering, is there, are we just on an evolution? Is it just a case that more people need to wake up even though we've, in, you know, we've got the evidence that it makes sense to lead with more heart, to lead with more connection. But it's, is it just too new for some organizations? Or what, what's your take on this? Challenges, openness? Well, I, I can give a little bit of a case study here. We were fortunate to work, um, I believe, for one of the most amazing CEOs. Uh, she, she led Pearson for... Um, uh, 13 to 15 years where most CEOs have a tenure of, you know, three years or less. And I can remember hearing from her early in her tenure that she talked about double digit growth. And um, if you, if you want to stop a lot of people from um, emotional um, attachment to an organization. Talk about double-digit growth in an education, in an education organization, organization where we you. all care yeah. about the kids and the right. outcomes. Right. And over time, her message changed to "We do well by doing good." So the the whole message to the to staff about profitability and growth, all of that changed to let's focus on what we're doing for teachers and kids, and the business side of it will, will take care of itself because we're doing good for people. That I think was an amazing transformation. And, but she was the kind of, she was the kind of leader that just knew um, um, how, to in, how to inspire people that way. She was also the kind of leader that knew who people were. And I was always amazed that she would call me by name, that she knew my name and you know, you go into a meeting with the CEO, you got 35,000 people in this company and she knew my name. And that just showed um, the, the humanity, the importance of, of looking at people as people. One of the charges that she gave us, which still resonates in my heart to this day, is she told us, I want you to be brave, imaginative, and decent. decent brave, imaginative, and decent. That was the frame by which she wanted us to approach our work together. It was, it was really, I mean, goosebump worthy and absolutely worthy of ourselves. That's, I've got goosebumps. I've literally got it as you described that. I'm really interested in your opinion. I love the fact, and I thank you for sharing a real life experiential change that you both experienced. What do you think or what do you know shifted for her that she went on that journey herself? Boy, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, there was a lot of that um, in, in the early part of the te tenure. There was a lot of that um, focus on financial metrics. And then it, it just gradually shifted. And I wasn't... I wasn't part of that inner circle, so I can't say. I just know who she was as a person, and that's where her, her heart was, the way that she dealt with people. When she walked down a corridor, she would stop people and say hello to them. That's just who she was. And the company, the company did very, very well under her, her leadership. So I think this idea of doing well by doing good um, 
uh, was borne out. And I think that part of it, it kind of goes back to that cluster of beliefs that you talked about related to what is it that I'm doing as a leader? Because I think underneath that old school command and control cluster is a basic assumption that people are lazy, they get away with stuff, and that the way that you get stuff out of it is literally cracking a whip over them and saying, there's the target, go get it. Right? It's, it's also that this mistaken belief that as a leader, you have to make decisions. You have to be the one to make the decisions. That's what leaders do. That's how we, we train people, unfortunately, that to lead is to decide as part of that, that whole command and control. And having people give that up doesn't mean ab abdicating the responsibility. You talked about uh, Marquet and you know his work on the uh, on the the submarine. He wasn't giving up um, control. He was sharing control, but he was teaching people how to assume those kinds of responsibilities. And he had amazing results. And he had amazing results. And I think that the new belief system, back to your sort of thought about why aren't people just taking this on? Why aren't we seeing more of this? Won't we be seeing more of it? Is this the other way of doing it, the shared leadership, shared ownership way? The belief underneath is you want to achieve the results. You are working hard to achieve the results. And there are things, there are real important obstacles that are in your way. And our job is to uncover those obstacles and help you guys work together better using all of the strengths, talents, um, inner drive that you have. And that's how you get through it. So a, a leader who's approaching a team that's, that's about like describing the metric, that doesn't help the team unlock any getting to the metric because they think they're already doing that, right? So it's like... It's only by saying you want to be there and let's look at what's, let's look at kind of what would it take back to your question about, you know, you asked that sort of what if you focused 95% on people, people, what would it take to make the kind of impact that we have, that we want to have in the world, what would it take? And then really listen, because the other part, you know, Jeff talked about conversational turn-taking is one of the key findings out of the Google research. The other part is what they call ostentatious listening or real deep listening for both the surface communication and the emotional communication and like the purpose or psyche or like mission kind of part of the communication. I told you, Gary, she never forgets anything. <laughs> it, <it's, laughs> you were right, Jeff. You were it's, right. It's scary at times, Gary. <laughs> she reads something once or hears it and it's, it's up there. It's neatly filed. Yeah, but meanwhile, he reads like a hundred times more than me. So like, what I do read, I read really deep. <laughs> What's really stunning, actually, I, I love what you just spoke to there, Curtis, around this belief. I've not thought of it that way. If you're going through a system or an organizational setting where the metrics is the prevailing communication tool, that is the prevailing belief structure. So... If every time we use metrics over any other form of communication, you are reinforcing that belief. So why would someone step out and go, 
there's a better way, or this isn't working, when the only thing that matters in the language or the parlance is metrics. That's a really interesting reflection to think, actually, if you're listening to us now, if you're kind enough to be with us, if metrics is a prevailing language in your organization, I'd love to hear from you. Do you feel safe to challenge? Do, if, mm. do you try and use different language if mm. that's a prevailing belief system? It's such an interesting pivot. Yeah, I have, a, I have a, a real personal story, and I've told this to Kirsten, and she's had me in her class a couple of times to do guest lecture. And um, when I was head of social studies at Prentice Hall, um, and I'd be addressing our department, I would talk to them about, you know, we made X million dollars. We sold X million dollars worth of textbooks. And when I looked out at, at the, the, the team, they were sitting there with their arms crossed and they were deadpan. And I was thinking, guys, we just made, I don't know, 55, $75 million selling textbooks. And I gradually realized that was not, that's not why they were doing what they were doing. They were doing what they were doing because they wanted to educate kids. They wanted to help kids and they wanted to support teachers. So I eventually changed my whole message around and got a different look back on it. But the metrics was the, it was the killer. But tell him the new metric you shared with people because there was still a metric. That's true. It was a different metric. What I did was I added up the number of, of books that they put into the hands of children across the United States and figured that each book is approximately a foot tall. And I multiplied 12 inches times the number of books and got X number of miles. And I said, you, you put the number of books in kids' hands that would reach the moon and back. That's how many, that's how many books kids are using that you created. And that was, that was a metric, but it was a different metric because- And they, technically it was the same one. He took the same metric, did the math, but he connected it to why. And to, and to them. You know, what is, what's motivating my audience? What's motivating my people? It wasn't sales. It was, it was that kids would be holding their, we looked at it, when we produced a book, it was like our child. You know, I can remember seeing a book flying off a press and it was like, that's the closest I'm ever gonna get to the birthing experience, all right? And that's the way we looked at it and that's the way our, our people looked at it too. That is, honestly, my whole body is just shaking with shivers as you said that, because yes, it is a metric, but I think it's, I'd just like to talk a bit more about your book before we wrap up as well, that's coming out next year. But what you spoke to brilliantly there, Jeff, for me is a heart attachment to an outcome and not just a head attachment. So it's right back to where we started, which is emotion moves us to action. Metrics are just a thing. There might be some people that get moved by metrics. I'm struggling to find one that truly will go out of their way because of a metric. And if you, if you take that analogy further and you're thinking about helping, you know, changing, moving the dial, because a lot of times leaders aren't about just the current state, but they're about what, where do we need to be next? So you're not sharing the metrics that, that's about, you know, we're at 75 million and we need to be at 150 million. What would it take to be at 150 million? You know, maybe it's, what would it take to 
triple that impact so that even more students, like what if, if you look at a map of the United States and you look at all the students there, we're actually still only, even though we're going to the moon and back, we're still only touching one out of five students. What would it take to touch even more, right? That's brilliant. What a, wow. What a great, what a great provocation for us all. I love that. Thank you. Thank you both so much. I'm, we knew this would happen. Like we need another day and a half, but um, <laughs> I'm conscious that we've all got paid work to go and do. So if we spend these last few minutes together, tell us a little bit more, if you will, both about the book. It's a lovely segue. You just spoke about that, that wonderful purpose and how you've reframed it. Um, Jeff, you know, where did the book come from and what are you hoping to achieve through the book? Well, the, the, the book came from our association of doing the podcast together. And the podcast came together from our association of working together at Pearson Prentice Hall. Uh, we, we became very close. We were in the same department, the social studies department, but we were also involved uh, in, um, the, in Pearson's innovation effort at the time. And uh, just to set the, the record straight for your millions of listeners, Gary, Kirsten is far superior in terms of her innovation facilitation than I am. Yeah, but he's the innovation guru. He was the one who brought that whole effort into Pearson and helped them figure out how to roll it out to everybody. Anyway, our association, we, we, we eventually, after we left Pearson, we decided to do the podcast. And, and change was, uh, we had both just gone through individual changes. So change both personally and professionally, was on top of mind. We knew we wanted to do something together around that. We found uh, the, the venue where we could, we could start the podcast. And basically, one day we were sitting in a conference room or a little workroom, much like we're sitting here today, and Kirsten said, we should write a book together. And that was, that was and really- And Jeff said, nah. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was the genesis of it, is that, you know, we had something to say. We knew we had something to say in support of educators who in the United States, and I assume around the world, Gary, in the UK, are bludgeoned. You know, they're never, uh, they're never good enough. Um, uh, what they're doing never supports students correctly. And we felt that we needed to provide um, uh, some tools to help leaders, to help teachers make good decisions that would support themselves better. And that's really... That's really the genesis. We brought in a third um, uh, partner, partner, as you mentioned before, Mark, Margaret Sakai. And um, uh, Margaret was a principal that um, I had worked with uh, early on and just uh, an amazing collaborator. So that was the, that's the nature of the book. It comes out in March. It's all about um, uh, helping, helping leaders and their teams uh, undergo productive change to lead productive change. We have a simple... Um, uh, change organizing focus in the book but also and I think this is a real strength of the book is that we've got a lot of voices from uh, leaders from educators doing change and and where they succeeded and where they didn't succeed right anything else you'd like to add to that Kirsten well it was as Jeff says it came out of speaking on the topic it came out of sharing ideas with different people from different perspectives. And it very much came out of this wonderful partnership that Jeff and I have where he tends to see things from the individual, personal uh, leadership perspective. And I tend to see things from the 
organizational system team perspective and you really need both back to the idea of emotion it's not just about smart it's also about healthy you really need both in order to make productive change happen and so it came out of our collaboration and margaret is was a former principal she has a lot of connections in the field and she helped us weave all of these stories because just like today you know how jeff is so good at telling stories a lot of times people learn from stories and so being able to have that as part of the book was really important and it's it was one of those things that when we were done we said and it was good <laughs> you know and um yeah i'm looking forward to march yeah, yeah. me too oh that's amazing well if i may say I'm sorry for you listening, you can't see these two lovely human beings, but you've got an incredible chemistry and energy. The way you bounce off each other, the respect you show each other in the conversation, it's just beautiful to see. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your time. And I will make sure your contact details are in the show notes, but I'd like to give you the last word. What, what would you like our listeners to take away from our conversation today? What's moving you in the moment right now to, to share with them? I would love for you to ask yourself some what ifs as a result of this conversation. You know, Jeff threw out some, Gary threw out some, I threw out some. In the next week, as this is percolating in your head, ask yourself some what if questions and then notice what results you get from them. And I, I, I'm going to borrow from you, Gary. I, I would say, um, I would ask people to look into their hearts and say, um, what are you feeling? What are you sensing? What do you know? And um, I, I just think we, we, don't, we don't do that enough. We, we, we suffocate those types of emotions often. And uh, I would just say, uh, take a peek in there. What are you feeling and sensing about yourself uh, going forward? Wonderful. What fantastic wisdom. Thank you both so much. And um, all the best with the book in next year. And we can say it now. Have a great Christmas. Ah, thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Gary, for having us. Thank yes. you both. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, what a wonderful conversation that was. I really hope you enjoyed joining myself, uh, Jeff, and Kirsten in conversation. What a wonderful Wonderful couple of human beings. You can see, can't you, why they work so well and so collaboratively together. Uh, I just wanted to share a couple of my um, key takeaways from this conversation today. One I think was really, really critically important was when they spoke about the fact that if the leader jumps in too soon, if we hear from the leader too quickly around the table, people are going to pull back and say, why do I need to counter Jim? This is how he feels. So just have a think about that for yourself at the moment. If you're leading teams or even in your um, family setup at home, where have you maybe accidentally and innocently cut off the opportunity for someone to speak up or challenge or add or innovate um, to a situation because you gave your view and maybe it was an authoritative view um, that closed other people down, maybe even by accident? It's a really, really helpful reflection for us all. I also enjoyed hearing that if you want to stop a lot of people from emotional attachment to an organisation, talk about double-digit growth. But it's interesting hearing the story that over time, uh, the senior leader changed her message to we do well by doing good. And I just think it's really powerful how 
um, Kirsten and Jeff shared these reframing of basically metrics in and of themselves are not a problem. But I think what's really clear from the conversation today, and I've had it really hammered home to me through this discussion, is, again, what's the language we're using and what is the intent behind? So are people going to be moved emotionally, purposefully behind the metric mission that you have? Or are they just going to be, okay, that's pointless. It's just making money or it's just trying to hit the numbers. You know, this is such a rich discussion for me because it's not just about the importance of our emotional awareness for us as leaders, but also our emotional awareness as individuals and you know, what makes us tick, um, what gets us out of bed at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, what makes us want to thrive and contribute and connect and be selfless. So many things coming up for me in this conversation, just beautiful. And the last thing I wanted to wrap up with you, again, back to that point around reframing, is I love Jeff sharing his story that he, rather than just talking about 20 million or 30 million or 50 million sales, he actually reframed it for his people because he understood what drives his people. He's trying to make a difference in society via education. So he changed his message to, he added up the number of books that they put into the hands of children across the United States and figured that each book is approximately a foot tall. He multiplied 12 inches by the number of books and got to X number of miles. And then helped share with his team that you helped team put the number of books in kids' hands that would reach to the moon and back. How different does that, like, how different does that feel when Jeff explained that story over we, t- we made 50 million? Again, making 50 million is a good thing. It pays salaries, it pays bonuses, it pays taxes. None of that is negative, but it's the why, you know, what do we really, are we really fired up um, by money or is it actually the purpose behind? And it takes us back beautifully to Dan Pink's work around autonomy and mastery and purpose, I think. And in his book, Drive, he speaks about that money is a motivator, but only in the short term. Long term, it needs to be something more intrinsic. And this whole conversation has spoke beautifully to that. So I really hope you've enjoyed this conversation. We'd love to hear from you. Any challenges, any thoughts, any additions to this conversation? And until next time, to, please do connect with both Kirsten and also Jeff. They're wonderful human beings. Um, at the point of recording, I've just found out today um, that I'm going to be able to meet Jeff in real life in Chicago, which is super exciting, um, in March when I'm over there for the, um, the Humans First event. So just really, really grateful to this community of amazing heart-led leaders that continues to emerge and evolve. And every one of you listening, you are a heart-led leader. If you've got the curiosity, the open-mindedness and the interest to try and lead differently and be better, um, you know, this podcast is here to serve you and to serve um, all of us. So you can find me at Gary IP Catalyst. That's G-A-R-R-Y IP Catalyst on Twitter. I'm Gary Interpersonal Catalyst on LinkedIn, and you can find my email at GaryTurner0 at Hotmail.com. That's G-A-R-R-Y, Turner0, one word. And I really hope to hear from you. I'd love, love to hear from anybody that's getting value or indeed want to challenge what they hear on the podcast. Until next time, which will be episode 97, where we're reaching that big 100. Um, thanks for joining me, and I really hope that this podcast serves you. Thank you. Really hoping that you enjoyed that exploration on the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. You can find out much more about HexoChange at hexochangenow.com. That's H-E-X-O-Change-Now, one word, dot com. You can subscribe to a weekly newsletter at that website, which includes information about live stream conversations, further service offerings, 
blogs, but also our in-person events of which we have multiple each year. So I really hope that you'll join us. Do connect with me, Gary Turner on LinkedIn, and I really hope to hear from you soon.